This is episode 536 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. If you look around at our culture, you can see things are getting darker for our nation and the church. We've experienced betrayal at the highest level of our government. Our elected officials lie as if it was some sort of spiritual gift, and they are never held accountable. At least it seems that way. In fact, we almost expect it from those who hold those positions to lie. And God's judgment is being slowly unleashed upon our land. We have record inflation, rising crime, war breaking out all over the globe, violence and hatred worn as a badge of honor, and a growing apostasy that has not only overtaken the pulpits of America, but also the pews. And every day it only seems to get worse. What are we to do? Join us today as we look at the book of Haggai and discover the importance of putting God first in all things before he allows us to suffer the consequences of our selfishness, our lack of faith, and our sin as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Uh, you know what kind of crazy times are that we're living in, and so I wanted to uh, just remind us once again of some of the things that we've been talking about. Number one, the major question is, what is faith? Well, I know what faith is. That's faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I got that. But the, the object of our faith is what's important. We have faith, as we talked about earlier, faith in the Lord, faith in Him, faith in not necessarily what He will do for us and faith in His hand, but actually faith in, faith in His character and His nature. We've talked a lot about being a faith prepper. What is a prepper? Oh, a prepper is a hoarder. No, only if you watch television. Um, matter of fact, every one of you in here are a prepper. Do you have a savings account? You're a prepper. What you're doing is you're putting away money you have today in a savings account so you can use it as another time if you need it. You're not spending everything you have today. You're planning for tomorrow. And so uh, if you have uh, life insurance, you're a prepper. If you literally have more food in your pantry than you can eat today, technically you're a prepper because you bought more yesterday that will, that will sustain you not just today, but also tomorrow. And so when it comes to being a faith prepper and you combine those two, it means that what we want to do is build up our faith, to increase our faith, to have faith like we've never had before. Faith leads to a higher Christian life. Faith leads to a more intimate relationship with the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, it says it is impossible, categorically impossible, no matter how hard you try to please God without faith. And so we all have a measure of faith. And sometimes when a crisis hits, our faith grows. But when a crisis isn't hitting and things are going pretty well, we have a tendency of just kind of coasting on the faith we have. But if you read the New Testament, especially in the encounters Jesus had with people, it seems like everything he did was contingent upon faith. I've never seen such faith in all of Israel to a Roman Gentile. According to your faith, let it be done unto you. The kingdom of heaven and the gospel and our salvation is appropriated into our life by faith. So how do we have faith? How do we have our faith grown? One way is to have it tested. 
But none of us want to do that. We don't want to go through a testing. We want to go through a trying time where we can't handle things ourselves, or we lose our job, or a tornado wipes out our house, and we have nowhere to turn but the Lord, and he proves himself faithful. We would rather not do that. Instead, we uh, would rather kind of be rely on our own ability, our own substance. Last week, Tammy shared some of the things the Lord did in her life, and what really hit me about that is I've been where Tammy uh, has been. And every time um, somebody, we had nothing to eat and somebody just bought groceries by and I just praise the Lord for that. All it did was bolster your faith, did it not? You know, if God can care for the simple things in life, like feeding my children for one meal today, and if I'm trusting him to prepare a place for me in heaven and receive me unto himself, which I totally believe, then why can't I have that kind of faith in the here and now, or or in the great by and by in the here and now where I live today? And so the idea is that we want to increase our faith, especially as we see dark times coming. How does that happen? Well, as you're going to see in the book of Haggai, one of the ways that hinder that from happening is having our priorities skewed. Um, On Tuesday night Bible study, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the life of Philip. And uh, I can't tell you how God convicted me in the life of Philip. Philip's a good guy. Philip uh, loves the Lord, but Philip is planning. He started off really well. You know, but this is the Messiah and this is Christ. And every time you see Philip in the rest of the New Testament, his faith is now shrinking as his logic and pragmatism increases. Hey, Philip, uh, there's a whole bunch of people out here. Um, How much money do you think it would take to feed all these people? How are we going to feed all these people? Oh, wow. Let me see. Um, one, two, three, four, five thousand, seven thousand, seven thousand, five hundred, nine thousand. Calculate. Well, let's just—if we gave him just enough to survive one meal. Oh, I come up with this number. Lord, it takes a day's, a year's wages for a, a common laborer, two hundred denarii, about forty grand to be able to feed everybody. And they really wouldn't have a big meal; they would just have a morsel. Really. I've been out here healing these people, and when it comes to something as practical as as feeding them, you are calculating in the flesh rather than trusting me to do it in the spirit. And then the last time we see Philip is in, uh, the last time he says anything is in John chapter uh, 14, where Jesus is getting ready to talk about the Holy Spirit, and he talks about the fact that he's going to go uh, leave physically from them. And Philip says this, if you'll show us the Father, that will be enough. Jesus was taken back. Have I been with you so long, Philip, that you say something like that? You don't recognize? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he was saying, if you'll show us the Father, we will be satisfied because what you are, Christ, obviously doesn't satisfy. You are not enough for me in my life right now. And I noticed in this life of Philip that he started out really strong in faith. And as it progressed over the three and a half years, It appears, just from the accounts we have in the New Testament, that Philip's faith became more pragmatic. It became more, if I can conceive it in my mind, then I can believe it. Or Jesus, you have to tell me exactly how you're going to do it in order for me to have faith to believe that you can. Much of the church is like that today. Much of a, I've spent much of my life 
like that. And uh, as I'm reviewing what we've been talking about about God's priorities and what are our priorities in life and what we've, we've learned, it's important to understand that we can't just learn and believe these facts in our head. They have to leave our mind and permeate our heart and every aspect of our life in order for us to have the kind of faith to trust Christ in bad times. God's sovereign. Yeah, 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 I, I know he's sovereign. Really? Then why do you worry about tomorrow? If he's sovereign and he knows exactly what he's going to do and there's nothing you can do to change it, why are you fretting about this, that, and the other? I mean, he can't be sovereign and loving and everything that he is, and still you doubt the fact that he knows exactly what's going on. I'm so fearful. I'm fearful about what's going to happen in Washington. I'm fearful about the riots that may happen this summer if the Supreme Court comes out and, and Jane's revenge starts burning down churches and all that kind of stuff. I'm just so scared about the economy and I'm worried about finances. And you don't understand how, how much I struggle with those things. But he's a king. He's a king, and a king is the richest person in a kingdom, and his kingdom is everywhere. And he's not only a king and made you a citizen, but he also made you a son, and a son and an heir. And so instead of focusing on what we struggle with, if we realize that the highest thing we can do, what brings us the greatest satisfaction in life is surrendering our life to him. No, it's making a lot of money. Why? Something that you're going to leave behind? Something that's only transitory at best? Something that doesn't guarantee you tomorrow's breath? Surrendering to Christ brings the greatest satisfaction always. And trusting him in everything has blessings unheard of that many of us, including myself, haven't even begun to experience, not only out there, but also in the here and now today. Well, I hear what you're saying, and you're right, Steve. I believe that. Okay. But are you living by that? Are we actually lining up our life with what we say we believe, or is it kind of like a cognitive thing? I believe this over here, but it has no personal impact in my life. And if so, then we gain nothing. How do we surrender our lives to him? The hardest part of the Christian life, honestly, is to surrender myself to him, to actually step away from what I want to do and let him make the choices. Because his choices have a tendency of not being what I would want to do, and his choices never seem to happen when I think they need to. It's my personal experience. I need an answer now. He's going to make me wait. Why? Because I don't want you to trust my hand, Steve. I want you to trust my character. If I said I'll take care of it, leave it with me. But, but, but I can't because I made a commitment or this has to be done or it seems logical to me. But surrendering our life to him is done by faith. Not faith in whether or not he's going to do what we want, but faith in his word, faith in his promises, faith in his character, faith in his attributes, faith in his faithfulness, faith in God himself. That's why he tells us that we have to come to him as little children, little children. When a five-year-old child uh, asks their father for something, well, I'm just use my own grandkids. I'm amazed uh, 
Maddie will come up and she'll say, hey, can I have this? And I'll say, no. And she'll say, okay, and walk away. She's moving out of the okay phase right now, in case you're interested. Um, before last year, year before that, it was always just okay, and, and that's fine. When the kids get a little bit older and they say, hey, can I have this? And you say, no, what is their response? Why? Why? Well, and I, I, first of all, I don't have to give you an answer, but I don't want to be like my mom and said, because I said so, although that's the perfect answer. You know? So I'm going to try to explain it to you. Well, because, because you're getting older and you want an answer, so I'm going to give you an answer. So I give you that. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? Pretty soon you're arguing with a 12-year-old. Who argues with a 12-year-old? Anyway, your parents do. You're arguing with a 12-year-old. And, and wait a second. It's childlike faith that he's looking for, and it's childlike faith that pleases him. And if we trust him, again, trust him in what his word says, then the promises he has become ours. If we don't trust him, I mean, I believe his statement's true, but I don't know if I can trust him. If we don't trust him, then the promises and the blessings are not ours, and we pretty much stay right where we are spiritually. And aren't you tired of that? I mean, honestly, aren't you tired? Wouldn't you rather experience something greater than you ever have before? So let me just show you three verses, and then we're going to look at Haggai, that uh, either they're either true or they're not. And if they're true and you agree that they're true, then you're going to have to determine whether or not you believe them. Then if you believe them, then we have to act on them. Very familiar passages, ones that you memorized already. First one, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Oh, I know what that means. Okay, well, what does it say? Trust. Oh, there, gosh. Starts out with that terrible word, trust, which is based on, based on faith. It means to surrender, yield, be subjective to. I'm going to actually not worry about it myself, and I'm going to place it at the feet of somebody. And who's that person? The Lord. I'm to trust him in just the areas that I can't handle myself. I'm going to trust him just in the big areas in life, but everything else I'm going to handle myself. No, trust him with all your heart, every single bit of who you are. Doesn't say trust him with your mind. Your heart is the center, especially in the Hebrew, it's the center of your life energy. It's, the, it's what we would call your soul. It's the seed of your emotion and will and volition. Think that's who you are. Trust him with all your heart. I don't know how. I mean, how do I go about doing that? Well, let's start with this. How about lean not on your own understanding? In other words, trust him, which means you don't trust you. Uh, yeah, but I know what's best. My, I've thought it in my mind, my heart, the Disney movies. Uh, my heart, I'm just supposed to follow my heart, which is deceitfully wicked among all things, the scripture says. Trust him with all your heart. And I do that by not relying on my own understanding. God, you're sovereign. I'm not. I see the situation. I think I know how this is going to work out. In my mind, I've worked out seven different contingencies. Lord, you choose one. No. No, trust him with all your heart. God, I give it all to you. I surrender totally to you. I don't know what you're going to do, but it doesn't really matter because you're my father and you're the king and you're the Lord and you're sovereign and I am just dust and ashes. And because I trust him, I will live that way. In everything I do, I will acknowledge his sovereignty. 
I would acknowledge his kingship. I will acknowledge his goodness. The first two of these are emotional and mental. You know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust you, Lord, with all my heart. I'm going to make that commitment, and I'm not going to lean on my own way of thinking and understanding. Then I walk out into the workplace, and I have to put that into action. So in all my ways, the ways I raise my kids, the way I handle things at work, my finances, my relationships with other people, my my entertainment choices, my friend choices, in all things, I will acknowledge you. Give my allegiance to you. Declare you as king over everything whom I passionately trust. And what will you do for me? I will direct your paths. I will tell you the right way to go. I will see to it that no wrong decisions are made in your life because I'll be the one making those decisions. There are no bad investments. There's no bad business choices. There's no bad relationships. You're not going to end up marrying the wrong person or end up dating the wrong person or busting your head against the same wall you've done every time you try to do it yourself. I'm going to take all that away by directing your paths. I will guide you, he says other places in Scripture, with my eye. Do I want that? Yes. Do I believe it's true? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I, 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 I believe it's true. And if you believe it's true, are you willing to incorporate this truth, this incredible truth from two verses in one chapter of a book of Proverbs into your life and live that way? And if so, we experience immense blessings. And if not, we keep going just like we are. If I, again, started with Josiah, and we did the 1 to 10 metric, with 10 being the highest, the closest you've ever been, you, individually, you, ever been to the Lord, and I asked you where you are now, I would venture to say, if you're like most congregations, there would be a very small percentage, maybe 5%, that would say they're 10s, that this is the closest you have ever been to the Lord. That means every one of us, at one point in time, we're closer to him than we are now. Aren't you tired of that? I mean, don't you want to be able to trust him to put together bad relationships or to give you direction on what you need to do. He can do that when we yield ourselves to him. Number two, very familiar passage. We talked about this two weeks ago. Here's a promise. Be anxious for nothing. How can I do that? Well, you're trusting him with everything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, which is faith, Trusting him and thanking him for whatever he does. Let your requests be known unto God and leave them there. Leave them there. It's done. It's finished. God will take care of it the way he wants to for his loved child. And what do you get in return? Peace. Peace comes from knowing you have left your prayer request, your problem, your fear of your worst nightmare at the foot of Christ and he will handle it. The peace of God, which nobody can even comprehend or understand, will guard like a warden, protect your hearts and your mind, which will lead you back to not trusting him and trusting in your own flesh through Christ Jesus. Seminary 101. Do you believe that statement's true? Well, yes, it's in the Scripture, and I've looked at it in the Greek, and I've followed it through the various translations, and that Scripture appears to be true. I believe it's true in God's Word. Okay, but do you believe it? And if you believe it, are you still worrying? Are you still fretting? Are you still panicking? 
Are you still leaving it with God? And if he doesn't move fast enough, God, I gave you 24 hours. You're just too slow with this. I'm going to have to handle it myself. Or do you trust him? And if you not, if you are anxious for everything, no wonder you're not experiencing this peace that no one can understand unless they have it from God themselves. And it's available to us by believing him. Last one. Here's the hardest one. It's the hardest one for men living in America. It's the hardest one for entrepreneurs or business people. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult, especially as we see inflation, especially as we see gas prices go up and shortages may happen and who knows what's going to go on. And, you know, if you live out in the Midwest, they're talking about brownouts this summer. I mean, it could be an interesting kind of time we're living in. And so here's the, here's the scary part for men. Therefore, do not worry. Oh, I hate chapter 6 of Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount because it's so practical. Do not worry. Well, how am I worrying? Well, you're saying, what shall I eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Where shall we live? Who's going to take care of our needs? How am I going to be able to take my, fund my 401k and, and I can't even afford my gas to go anywhere? I read a meme this week that said that when you, it's a joke, by the way, said that when you go on Kelly Blue Book to find the value of your car, if you want to sell your used car, the, uh, the qu- first question they ask is, is the tank full or empty? I mean, we're panicking about stuff like that. Do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we wear? What shall we drink? Why? For people who do not have a relationship with God, people who are not faith followers, people who cannot call the sovereign king their father, the Gentiles seek after those things. They seek after what we're going to eat and how we're going to live and what's going to happen in this world. And they, they panic over trivial things. But you, you are a child of the king. Therefore, your, this is personal now, it's not the father, it is your heavenly father. Your knows your personal needs that you need all of these things. And if you need all of these things, why would you assume he wouldn't provide them for you? So can I just stay home and watch reruns of Everybody Loves Raymond and expect him to meet all my needs? No, there's a, there's a caveat. And the caveat is you're about his business, he takes care of yours. If you're not about your business, then maybe you're going to have to wing it on your own. But we have the opportunity to be totally about his business. The next verse. But what am I supposed to do? It's really simple. Seek first, above everything, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall not just be given to you, because you've already been given so much, but they'll be added unto you, added to all the other things you have from him. Spiritual gifts. The, the fact that he loves you, that he sticks closer than a brother, that he calls you his friend, calls you his son, that you're a joint heir with Christ, that he has deposited himself in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. What more do we need? Oh, well, I, I need my f- physical needs taken care of. Those will be added to you on top of that if you seek him first. So was Jesus lying? Is this symbolic? Does it mean something other than what it says? Or does he really mean what he says? And if he does, what are you prepared to do about it? 
Do you truly believe that what he says is true? And if so, how do I incorporate that that into my life? Remember, everything depends on faith. So we're in Discipleship 101, Theology 101, whatever you want to call it. We pass out a sheet of paper. We ask everybody to rate on a scale from 1 to 10 how you believe these verses. 1 meaning they're not true at all. 10 meaning it is the authentic word of God, and you can trust him for everything. We pass that out. We pass all the papers in, and probably everybody has checked a 10. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. But what happens when we believe them but don't live like them? Wow. This is one of those actions is louder than words things, right? Yeah. What happens if we say we believe something, but our life indicates that we don't? We say we trust the Lord, but then we handle everything ourselves. We say that we love the Lord and never pray. We say that we, you know, want to spend our entire life just serving him, and yet we don't. You know, we don't even bother reading our Bible that much. We give him 10 minutes a day. What happens when we claim one thing but do another. John says that if we claim to have fellowship with the light and live in darkness, do you remember what he says? You're a liar. Calls it straight. We're a liar. What happens when we do that? Are there blessings of God that we forfeit? Have we learned to live at this substandard position when we're supposed to be kings? I remember... Long time ago, um, watching a movie called, I think it was called Interview with a Stranger. And it was a woman who was having dinner with Jesus. And she didn't know he was Jesus at the time. And so it was like an apologetic kind of conversation. And she had a lot of reasons why she didn't want to give her faith to uh, Christ. And of course, he was answering all of those. And at the very end, he kind of summed it up. And he said, look, you are sitting on the curb making mud pies in the dirt and I am offering you Disney World, and you can't even tell the difference. It works the same way here. What blessings have we forfeited? Are we forfeiting because we're satisfied with not trusting him like we say that we do? Or are we under God's chastisement? Are we displeasing him by our lack of faith? And if so, what's the purpose of that? What do we get out of that? I mean, how is living for the flesh living in pride and doubt and fear, how is that better than love and trust and faith? How does this even work in our lives? And and yet I I struggle with this daily. I, uh, in my personal life, um, I'll be real honest with you, I do not fear Satan at all. I don't. There's nothing about him that intimidates me. I am petrified of my flesh. Petrified. Because every... It seems like every sin I've committed, I've committed because I wanted to, because I chose to, because my flesh said, do this. Yes, it was tempted and maybe empowered by the enemy, but it was me who did this. It's my flesh, things I watch that I shouldn't, things I do, things I say, my my pride or anger or whatever it is, it's all flesh-oriented. But... How do I win? I mean, what's the payoff? It's like, show me the money. I mean, how how is there an upside to living for the flesh and not living for the Holy Spirit who lives in us? And what what cost has it been to my wife and my kids and maybe my grandkids when 
I may be under the chastisement of God because of my own arrogance, and there's a collateral kind of lack of blessing that maybe spills over to them. I mean, how does that work? If, God, if I'm too focused on one thing and God makes what I want to do in the flesh not work and it affects my family, I mean, how, how does that happen? If there's a thing called collateral blessings where a wife who's saved in a family stays devoted and maybe she's married to a lost husband and he's sanctified somewhat by her faithfulness, then it seems like the reverse would be true. What are we losing that we may not even be aware of? And I found, quite honestly, the key answer to that is found in Haggai, chapter 1. It's in a, there's only two chapters in the book. We're only going to look at chapter 1 today. It's an amazing book that shows us the cost of the lack of discipleship in our life. As you go through this, um, as we go through this today, and we're just going to look at a couple verses, I want to give you a little history lesson on where this is coming from. Uh, the issue here is that uh, God, had carried, uh, God had allowed Israel to be carried off into the Babylonian captivity. In uh, 536, Cyrus had issued a decree and allowed the Jews to go back to the um, promised land, to go back to Israel to rebuild their temple and to rebuild their, um, their walls around it. That's the whole Ezra and Nehemiah story. And so they basically head back. 16 years have passed before Haggai writes his book. During that time, the Samaritans had given them a really tough time. had attacked them with raiding parties and stuff of that nature. Cyrus died in battle. A new king came, and a new king wasn't as keen on the Jews that are there. There's a little less than 50,000 that actually went back, and they had a commitment to make. And the commitment was that they were going to go down, go back, this remnant, and they were going to rebuild the temple. Yet again, things got difficult. I'm going to serve the Lord with reckless abandon. He's released us from Babylonian captivity. Through a miracle, he's given us permission to go back and rebuild the temple. But when I'm going back and rebuilding the temple, things are tough. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's like sharing your faith at work. I may get demoted. Uh, people may laugh at me. It doesn't necessarily look good on my uh, end-of-the-year performance rating, but the fact is, I mean, th things are kind of difficult right now, but it doesn't matter because I'm there just to rebuild the temple. And when things got difficult, they quit. You know what? It's too hard to rebuild the temple, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to quit rebuilding the temple. We've got to go out there in the woods, and we've got to bring some of the um, lumber back, and we have to fight with the Samaritans every time we do that, and it's much easier for us not to do anything. God needs to make our path a little bit easier before we'll fulfill what he wants us to do. But at the same time, they built their homes. They built their homes, and they started their businesses, and they took care of their own needs, with the same materials that they could have built, they built a temple, but they didn't because it was more important for them to take care of themselves. And so four years went by, and all of a sudden, God speaks to Haggai. And Haggai comes, and the Lord through Haggai is asking him a simple question. Why is it so important for you to sacrifice for you, but not for me? And the answer is, because it affects me personally because it's my house, it's my sofa, it's my car, it's my retirement accounts, the things that I want to do because it affects me and building the temple doesn't really affect me. Matter of fact, I don't really care all that much. Why? Why, God says, don't you care about my house? Because it doesn't affect me today. It doesn't affect me right now. It doesn't affect me in the here and now. 
I'd rather spend my time in my kingdom than do anything to build your kingdom unless you make it so easy that I face no trials, tribulation, or heartache. But if I come up against any sort of thing that's going to affect my kingdom, I'm out. I'm done. I'm finished. It breeds narcissism. Spiritual narcissism where it's all about us. And that is exactly what's happening in Haggai. As you go through these two chapters, you're going to uh, and I strongly suggest you read them tonight. It doesn't take long. You're going to run into a couple key words. And the key word is consider. Chapter 1, verse 5, God says, consider your ways. Again, one seven. consider your ways, exclamation point. Carefully consider what I'm telling you right now. Consider it now. Consider it. Over and over again, consider, consider, consider. This is what's happening. This is where you are. Consider what you're doing. Consider your actions. Consider what you're losing or what I'm going to have to do to you to bring you back into the fold. Consider it. It's the exact same word Jesus used here. Matthew chapter 6 again. Here's what Jesus says. Why do you worry about clothing? Consider. Consider the lilies of the field. What? Yeah, go outside and just look at your neighbor's field and all the lilies and think about what that means. Think about what I've done. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I say to you not that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So what's the point you're trying to make, Jesus? So it's really simple. If now God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, which means nothing, how much more will he not clothe you? Oh, oh, if ye live little faith, you of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? Watch this. For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need, same phrase, all these things. Well, how do I get all those things? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Added to you. So let's look at Haggai chapter 1. I wanted to show you a couple things here that will hopefully encourage you to take serious the call of God. First of all, I want to give you the definition of revival, definition of the higher Christian life, and you'll find it in verse number 13. It simply says, In Haggai, the Lord's messenger spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. My presence is with you. You will experience who I am. This is a promise that happens in verse 13 after the people do something first. So let's begin at verse number one. It says, in the second year of King Darius, because Cyrus had already died, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai to the prophet, by Haggai to the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, governor of Judah. First of all, he's bringing it to the government here. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So the prophet, the prophecy is coming to the government and to the religion, to the government and the church. 
to the secular and the sacred. Saying, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying to, and here's a real scary word, it's no longer my people, it's this people. God is distancing himself from the remnant he sent back to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple because they lost their first, they left their first love, which was him. He doesn't even refer to them as my people, this people, those people. This people say, and this was a common phrase when people would say this, hey, how come we're not building a temple? How come we're not uh, doing what God called us to do? It's kind of like when the young person gets saved and they come to church on Sunday and they're so fired up for Jesus and they say, hey, how come we're not out there telling people about the Lord? And we say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. There's a time for that and a time not for that. And we were like you when we first got saved, but you'll peter out like we did and become just as on fire for Jesus as we are now. Verse 2, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, the Jews say, my children say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Really? So what time should it be built? Didn't you come back for the purpose of building it? But now you're not building it and you're making excuses because what is too hard is too difficult, or are you spending all your time building your own houses? Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? So it's okay for you to sacrifice for you, but not for me. That it's okay to spend your life for you but I get what's left over. It's okay for you to live not just in abodes and dwelling places, but in paneled houses. Paneled houses are what kings had. It's okay for you to live in wealth and luxury, and my house stays in ruin, and when I convict you about that, your response is, it's just not time to build God's house. Who says? You? That's what I sent you here for. Therefore, watch what happens. The Lord of hosts says, consider your ways. You need to think about what you're doing. Think about where your heart's at. Think about that you're devoting your life to your job more than your family and more to your God. Think what's happening here. And look at your life. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. Everything you're doing isn't enough and is not satisfactory. You're not being satisfied and all your needs are not being met because you're doing it in the flesh and not doing it and putting me first. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. You know what that is? That's inflation. That's exactly what's happening. I earn enough wages to buy what I need. When I go to the store, I realize that what I have doesn't buy near what I need because there's a hole in my bag and the money has dropped out or the value of the money has dissipated. 
It's exactly where we are as a culture right now. Exactly where you may be in your own spiritual life. How come I work so hard and can't get ahead? How come I, everything I do it just turns bad? How, how come nothing seems to work out? How come I'm trying so hard to find satisfaction in this world and I can never find it? You will never find it because the Holy Spirit lives in you. The only satisfaction, the true satisfaction that we have is yielding ourselves to him. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I have a job for you to do. This is not just sitting down and thinking about it and coming back and not doing anything. There's a job for you to do. If you're considering your ways and if you realize what you have done, then correct it immediately. Verse 8, go to the mountain and one, bring wood. I mean, first, go to the mountain. Number two, bring wood and build the temple. Do what you're supposed to to do. Say no to the things that keep you from me and do what I've called you to do. Why? That I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. For you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Wow, so God, you're actually taking responsibility for making my life more difficult. Yes, I am. It's called chastisement. You went out and tried to just do it all about you and not putting me first. And yeah, you got everything you could and you brought it home and I blew it away. Why? Why? Because my house that is in ruins, while well, every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought to God's actions on the land and in the mountains and on the grain and new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. I call a drought. Now, let me get very practical about this. God is judging our nation. And God is going to judge our nation in a very serious way. Billy Graham many times said that um, if God doesn't judge America, and this was 40 years ago, that he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, we are, we are saying it's okay, and you're wrong to say it's not, is what our culture says, to try to convince a five-year-old boy that he's really a girl. And when he decides to be a girl, that all of a sudden we applaud him. Just, we're just messing up these innocent ones. That Jesus said that anyone who leads my little ones astray, it would be better for them if they died a horrific death. They have a millstone tied around their neck and drowned in the bottom of the sea. Judgment is coming. It's coming financially. It's coming, it may come militarily. Our culture is beginning to melt down. And unless you put him first, you will melt down with it. When God says, I will cause a drought on the land, there's all that, that's exactly what he's going to do unless you're a different kind of person that he blesses over and above the curse he brings on a land. Wisest thing, if you want to look at it just in a secular way, the wisest thing you could ever do financially for your family is surrender your life to Christ and let, him and let you experience the blessings that come from knowing 
him. It's exactly what the people did. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, that's the governor, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all, all the remnant of the people did two things. They obeyed the Lord and feared him. Number one, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of God. No, 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 the presence is what we want, not if there's sin in your life. The presence, I, I want to be close to the Lord so he can burn out that, that rebellion and pride and selfishness in your life. That's why so many Christians are afraid of going to heaven. I'm afraid to go to heaven. Why? It's supposed to be wonderful, I know, but deep down inside I'm going to stand before the Lord and he's going to look at me and go, what have you done with what I have given you? And I've done nothing. I spent it all on me. I'm going to be ashamed. It doesn't have to be that way. We can turn this thing around in a way that you and I can glorify him even if he brings judgment on our nation. Verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I know that you now fear the presence of the Lord, greatly revere that, but I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So what happens? If you do your part, God will do his part. Let me tell you what I have learned. Um, one of the most life-changing for me stories Jesus ever told was the parable of uh, the prodigal son, because I am the prodigal son, and I have been the prodigal son even as a Christian that I have gone my own way, I've done my own things. I mean, it was so bad early on in my Christian life that God literally put me on a shelf for two years. You know, he called me into the ministry and wouldn't let me do anything for two years because he had to beat the me out of me, and, uh, which has a tendency sometimes of, of um, crawling back from the grave. And it's a terrible thing to have an experience like that. But when God puts something on you, and gives you a job to do or a command or you make a commitment to him, if you go an inch, this is my experience with him, he goes a mile. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar? Out for seven seasons, out there like a wild man because of his pride and arrogance, God trying to break him. And, you know, he's like some wild animal eating grass. And the scripture says that all he did was look up. And when he did, God restored everything. He just went an inch and God went a mile. Prodigal son went out there and did everything. He's coming home willing to accept the position, not as a son anymore, but just as a servant, just so he wouldn't die. And the father ran to where he was, embraced him, and gave him everything he didn't deserve. A ring, kill the fatted calf, put a robe on him. My son who is dead is now alive. If you surrender a little, God rewards a lot. These people agreed and they said, you're right. We're going to obey the voice of the Lord. We're going to do what he said to do. We're going to go out and rebuild his temple. We're going to put him first in everything, no matter what it costs us. And we're going to fear, revere, honor the presence of the Lord. God says, I am with you. And in verse, verse 14, he began that process of turning them into who they needed to be. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, 
on the 24th day of the sixth month on the second year of King Darius. But the fact is that God wants to do the same thing for us. So I'm reading this and I'm looking at my own life. I'm looking at the church today and there's a couple of questions I want to close with. Number one, what were the people of Haggai's time doing with the money and time God had given them? Well, they weren't investing it in him. They were investing it in them. Why? Well, I, uh, I can't afford to tithe. Why? Because I'm barely making my bills now. Uh, Floyd, you're going to make your bills even less. I mean, the book of Malachi lists the only time in Scripture where God says, test me. You remember that? Bring all the tithe into the storehouse. I can't. I, I, I don't have enough money to, to pay everything, and now I can't even go to the grocery store, and now things are really terrible right now, and, and you want me to give tithe? No, I, I don't want you to do that. But God does. And God says, do that and see if I won't open up the, the gates of heaven and pour out on you a blessing you can't contain. Now, was he lying or was he telling the truth? Well, I believe he was telling the truth. Then do you, are you, you going to live like that or not in all areas of our life? So for them, the most important thing in their life was them. It's what they wanted to do. It's their finances. It's their house. It's their cars and their televisions and their Netflix subscriptions and all that kind of stuff and not him. And because of that, they didn't even realize the blessings they weren't given. They're working really hard to have enough to eat and it's never enough. They're working really hard to buy coats and blankets and central air conditioning and heating systems for their house, yet they're still cold. They're working really hard to, to make as much money as they can. And when they go buy this stuff, there's a hole in their, their purse and half the money's drained out. No matter what they do, they take two steps forward and three steps back and don't even realize the blessings they're moving because they're losing because God is not with them. What they didn't remember is what you and I should remember, which is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. So let me close with this. I have shared this verse with you at least 50 times. Maybe we need to do it 50 more until it becomes real to us. Now to him. Well, who is him? Hmm. He's our Lord, our King, our Father, the one we trust with our whole heart. Now to him who is able to do anything he wants, but the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul wanted us to know that he can do exceedingly, that's a big word. Abundantly, that's two big words together. Above all, and that word is pos, which means everything. It's is a very difficult verse to translate in the English because there's all these superlatives in the Greek piled on top of each other. Exceedingly, abundantly, above all. Nobody talks like that. The idea is you can't even imagine what we're talking about here. Think in your mind and it's bigger. Above all that you ask, takes a certain amount of faith to ask or even think. The things we think, oh, God could do that. I don't even have the faith to ask him for that. So we go beyond our limited faith in what we ask for to what we can conceive in our mind God is able to do and wants to do. How? How is that done? According to the power that's the Deuteronomy's explosive power of the Holy Spirit living in you, the power that works in us, not out there to other people, but in, in, where the Holy Spirit's at, in us, 
To him be glory. Where? Where that power is concentrated. Today, that power is concentrated in his church here. Every one of us who knows him has the Holy Spirit. This promise applies to every one of us individually. And as a group of believers who believe this promise, the power rests in the church, not through our programs, but through Jesus Christ, and not just to them, but to all generations. All generations. Do you believe this statement is true? Yes. Well, do you believe it for yourself? Do you believe it's true for you, or is it just true in your head? Is it just, as the old preacher used to say, is it just for preaching, or is this for living too? Are you ready to test him with this kind of life? What do you mean? Well, what I mean is test him. See if it's true. If he says it's true, he'll show you it's true. Test in your own life. Build your faith. Put yourself in a situation where it has to be true. I'm not suggesting anything. That's between you and the Lord. But if you have the faith to trust him in his word, then trust him in his word. Quit worrying and fretting about everything. Be anxious for nothing. Absolutely nothing. But in everything, by prayer, fellowship, communion, supplication, which is our request, we talk to him, make your request be known unto God, and experience this peace. Wouldn't you like to experience some of the exceedingly abundantly above all in your life? What this world needs is the church be the church. For me to be what Christ says I am. For not to me to be like him, but a little more moral, but to be totally different. Not just us being a little bit better than the world, but still worry and fret and complain about everything else, but just to trust him explicitly, to experience some of the exceedingly abundantly above all. So if that's true, why don't you pray this week and ask the Lord to show you ways to trust him with your biggest fear. Well, my biggest fear is my marriage. My biggest fear is my job. My biggest fear is the world out there. My biggest fear is I don't have any friends. My biggest fear is my health. My biggest fear is whatever. And just trust him with that. I'm not going to worry about this, Lord. I'm actually going to give it to you and leave it there. And then turn around and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And not one time this week, one time, worry about your physical needs. Because if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, it ain't your job to worry about your physical needs. It's his. It's his. If you're a father and a husband, well, it's my job to provide for the family. Absolutely. But the way you provide is through him. I mean, he, he uses you to provide through the family. That doesn't mean you have to worry about it or fret about it. God will always work it out. Tammy's testimony last week was a classic example of that. And let's see if what he promises in Malachi isn't true, that he truly will open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you and I can't even contain it, because that is exactly what he promised to do. And in Haggai chapter 1, it's what turned the people around and what kept them originally from experiencing the fullness of God was worrying about themselves rather than him. Amen? Let me pray.